Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money only on Money FM 89.3. I'm Michelle Martin. Perhaps you've taken note of higher electricity prices. Looking at your bill, it was last year when we started to see the pool of open electricity market players grow smaller. OEM retailers started to shut down as their profit margins shrank and market consolidation started to creep in. What are our options for choice and are they diminishing? Those were some questions that came my way. This as the gap continued to narrow between regulated tariff rates and OEM rates from as high as 30% three years ago to around 10% then. Now, six days ago, SP Group said the electricity tariff is going up by 5.6% for the next quarter. This on the back of rising fuel prices, meaning most households will see higher electricity bills for at least the next three months. And we know there's a global fuel shortage and that a number of factors affect the supply of gas into Singapore. So today we're going to take a look at some of them to understand what is causing prices to spike. They've got to be hurting, especially with a lot of us working from home. Later, a look at what the bond market is signaling about economic recovery and 10 cents divestments. Tencent trimming its stake in Shopee Base C by $3 trillion, and that knock-on effect on Chinese tech stocks anticipated as it focuses, Tencent this is, on new industries, including the metaverse. So a closer look at its divestments and possible impact on other stocks, tech stocks, that is Chinese internet stocks, I should say. Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. It's his first show in the new year. Good morning, Arun. Good morning, Michelle. Great to have you back. So, Arun, a lot of us have been looking at our high electricity bills, uh, reading the news saying, oh, gosh, you know, we're anticipating higher bills for the next three months. And we know that the electricity tariff is part of the equation, 5.6% up on the back of rising fuel prices. So I guess the question for the layman is, what really influences my electricity bill? To what, what do we understand about the state of oil supply right now? Right. So in Singapore specifically, uh, 95% of electricity, so basically the entire amount, is generated or derived from natural gas. So it's a little bit different from various countries, but Singapore specifically, the underlying price is directly related to the underlying price of natural gas. And that is something that we've seen a lot of volatility in the past six months to nine months. To give some context to that, uh, the price of natural gas prior to like in Q2, Q3 of uh, last year went up from lower than $4 in, from the months of September to November, close to December. It went up to above 6 And now it's just tracked back down in the past like month and a half, back down to $4. To give some slightly longer term context, in calendar year 2020, so like two years ago, this price was hovering at around $2, right? So we can see prices going up like 2x, 3x, then crashing down by 35% over the past couple of months. So it is an extremely volatile underlying commodity. Now, obviously, you know, SP Group and the Singapore government, for that matter, can't directly pass on those kinds of price volatility to households, right? Imagine if your electricity bill one month goes up like two times and then the next month crashes down by 30%. 
it just is not feasible. Mm-hmm. So it's all about doing these long-term hedges uh, or doing derivatives or striking forward contracts in the financial market, which investment banks are more than happy to cater to, so that these electrical uh, electricity distribution companies or power generating companies can protect their own balance sheet, right? So all of that being said, and that's exactly what we saw issues uh, that we talked about like three months ago in the OEM market. Right. And it's no coincidence, you know, September to November when prices went up to $6, a bunch of these guys went bankrupt mm-hmm. because they just didn't hedge themselves, right? They didn't, uh, they were sitting and buying uh, natural gas uh, create, produced electricity from SP Group or other providers at the much higher prices, but they had locked in us consumers into a two-year, three-year contract at substantially lower than market prices. So given all of that, uh, we've obviously seen a bit of a cleaning up of the market, which is, you know, as expected, considering there were, I think, 13 uh, resellers of electricity at a certain point. Uh, That's whittled down to a handful. And given that now natural gas prices have kind of stabilized, albeit at a slightly higher price, we can see SP Group and other electricity providers will slowly start resetting the prices higher. And that's something that we as consumers, not just in the electricity space, but across the board, right? This whole theme of inflation is going to be one of the big talking points this year, I feel. Indeed. But why is it if we're expecting OPEC and allied nations to gradually increase oil? That was a headline we were reading uh, earlier this week, right? OPEC, Russia, other oil producers are going to gradually increase their monthly output from February. Why are we expecting high electricity bills for at least the next three months, maybe six, some say? So interestingly enough, the correlation between oil and natural gas has actually reduced quite significantly over the past two or three years. So basically what that means is, you know, if the price of oil goes up, you would expect, and if the correlation is only 0.25, then only 25% of the increase of natural gases or the change in natural gases price is affected because of oil. So at least in pertaining to electricity prices in Singapore, they're kind of like two separate things. Though, you know, in a very big overall picture, obviously oil is one of the fundamental underlying uh, electricity producing resources that we have, right? So talking about oil specifically though, yes, OPEC has been, uh, you know, opening up its taps a little bit more, still nearly enough, right? I mean, that, that that's the reason why Biden came out with this partnership with Japan, uh, Australia, and a couple of other countries Thing that they're going to release oil from their strategic reserves. So if you look at oil prices, for example, uh, you know, we went to negative at one point in 2020. We're trading at sub $50 for most of 2020. It's been in a steady uptrend and we're currently clocking in at around 75 to $80, give or take over the past couple of months. And it's been quite steady in terms of the price action uh, for oil, at least over the past five or six months which is very different from natural gas that had a huge spike up September to November. Now it's coming back down. So from the aspect of oil, OPEC doesn't seem to be wanting to, you know, truly open up its taps and start pumping out a lot more oil because they're still quite cautious looking at the longer term aspect of, yes, you know, the world economy is opening up, growth is coming back in, more oil is being used, yada, yada, yada. That's fantastic. But at the same time, we can also see on the transportation side, especially, uh, 
when it comes to consumers, individuals, we're seeing a lot more of electric vehicle sales, right? This whole EV aspect. Uh, John Deere is coming out with, you know, electric uh, uh, tractors and motors and all of that in the commercial space too. Right. Uh, so in all of looking at that from the perspective, I think what OPEC is trying to do is taking a lot more of a long-term, like next two years, three years, 10 years projection of oil demand, hence they're being a little bit more cautious, which is different from the political pressure that governments are facing right now with inflation running rampant, right? U.S. inflation in December touched the highest that it has been since 1982, so like 40 years. So from that perspective, uh, governments across the world, uh, or at least the the oil-consuming governments across the world, they want oil to be down to 40, 50, which OPEC could do, but that's not in their long-term interest. All right, got it. Thanks for helping us understand the natural gas landscape a little bit. Uh, deeper on this show. Arun, we've seen 10 and 30 year treasury yields climb to their highest level since October this week, Tuesday, in fact. That was the second straight session in which long end government bonds sold off. Fixed income investors seem to be unworried uh, with Omicron shaking off Omicron. My friend Jeff Haley had an interesting headline, Omegon, he calls it. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what can we read from bond yields? And what do they mean for stocks? You know, honestly, Michelle, like taking a step back for just bond yields overall, mm-hmm. 10-year at 1.7, 30-year at 2, it just doesn't make any sense, right? Like it's just far, far too low in terms of the yields. Yeah. So obviously like conflicting uh, messages as uh, any market is. It's all about supply-demand. Mm-hmm. Uh, growth coming back in, inflation spiking up, but then this Omicron or oh my God uh, variant coming and slapping uh, potential future growth prospects. But it's interesting to see, I mean, last night, right? If you look at the Fed Reserve uh, minutes that were released, Mm. there was literally a section of, uh, you know, discussion of bringing like normalization consideration, right? Discussion of policy normalization consideration, a separate section was specifically dictated to that. And that's because the Fed has gone about increasing its balance sheet to over $8 trillion worth of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, which is, you know, obviously the highest all time and all of that stuff. So, you know, what has the Fed been doing? they obviously concerned about the COVID uh, uh, pandemic that's been going on in the world, lower growth, uh, not very high unemployment rate, especially if you go back to March to May of 2020, lowered front-end interest rates basically down to zero. And then they went about trying to buy pretty much any fixed-income asset class they could find in the back end of the curve. So like 10-year, 20-year, 30-year, et cetera. And they kept buying those bonds to ensure that the interest rates or the yields can be pulled lower, right? And that was to facilitate corporates, individuals, et cetera, to be able to take more loans, which obviously corporates across the globe have done that by the bucketful. I mean, if you look at property companies in China, how are they allowed to get away with leveraging up so much at such attractive value, at such attractive prices, such low interest rates, because central banks pretty much all over the globe brought down the interest rate curve through these financial mechanisms of, you know, sitting and buying bonds in the back end, lowering front-end interest rates so much. All of that has to be unwound at a certain point 
And the trigger for that is inflation. So as we've seen over the past three months, six months, you know, the whole terminology of transitory inflation has gone. Now, un- unemployment is basically at its all-time, give or take, low levels in most countries. And we are starting to see growth come back in, inflation spiking up, not just based on supply chain issues, but genuine demand across all asset classes, right? It's not just bubbles in certain like property segments or whatever, but if you look at food, we talked about oil earlier on in the segment. Across the board, we are seeing price increases. And to mitigate that, the central bank needs to do both things. They need to sit and unwind their huge balance sheet, so reduce liquidity in the market, and start increasing interest rates. So that's what we, I think we just started seeing that huge unwind. Obviously, this is all contingent to uh, not another COVID variation coming along, which doesn't seem that likely given the huge uh, spike up or increase in terms of vaccination rates across the globe. So putting all of that together, uh, my personal take is, and you know, um, I was listening to Ray Dalio's podcast a couple of days ago, mm. same thought process, right? Where Cash and bonds is not the place to put your money because inflation is one of the biggest hidden taxes that the world has not had to face or suffer from for the past 10 years. Hmm. He believes, and I kind of agree with him, that the next five or 10 years, that's going to be a big change. So cash, bonds, you know, deploying capital over there doesn't make sense. The only game or one of the biggest games left in town is the equity space. You have to start deploying capital over there, dividends, companies being able to pass on costs to consumers, rock solid balance sheet, great brand names, et cetera. And, uh, you know, take baby steps from there. Electrifying analysis, Arun, I have to say. Wonderful. Now, listen, let's talk a little bit about equities and focus on Tencent Holdings. Tencent pairing its stake in Singapore-based C-Limited, the consumer tech firm that's listed in the U.S. Um, this following its plan to offer its stake in JD.com as a special dividend. We've seen Forrest Lee, uh, founder of C's Network, taking a big hit. Tencent selling off uh, its C-Limited shares, pairing it down. Uh, Bloomberg estimates that Forrest's uh, personal wealth down 10 billion US dollars, but Tencent pairing its stake in C has also been bad news for Hong Kong. We've seen declines in Meituan, Kuisho, Bilibili, all partly owned by Tencent, and they pushed the market in Hong Kong towards its worst start to the year in 17 years, so its worst start since 2005. So what can we learn from Tencent Holdings cutting its stake in Singapore's C? What does it signal to you? I think what it signals to me is what China wants, China gets, right? <laughs> I mean, this is obviously not a, I mean, regardless of Tencent talking about the metaverse, spending more money over there, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. This is obviously, uh, you know, directives from the CCP coming down saying, look, what ha- has happened in the past five or 10 years, we don't care about that anymore. Uh, we want to get back into, you know, this whole be done with this aspect of anti-competitive, anti-monopolistic data sharing, uh, enclosed technology bubbles that have been created with the likes of Tencent versus Alibaba. I, I mean, look at Tencent, right? Obviously, they've done phenomenal growth, great product, all of that stuff, and that's fantastic. They have a portfolio of close to 200, or they had a portfolio of close to 200 billion U.S. dollars. Astonishing. 
worth of stocks across the board in JD, C, Meituan, you name it, right? All these potentially unrelated companies, but they're not exactly because, you know, once you plonk in $20 billion into another company, you start having all these quote-unquote strategic discussions and conversations about sharing data, cross-selling of goods, cross-selling of payment channels, all of that stuff, right? So Mm -hmm. it was interesting where, you know, obviously there are many multi-billion dollar companies in China, but if you look at Tencent and Alibaba, the way they were, you know, kudos to them, they managed to pull it off uh, up till the last like couple of months, they managed to create such a, an impressive product and service, monetize that insanely well, took all the profits of that and reinvested them into creating other verticals within their own business, but also in a much, in a very smart way again, you know, went about uh, doing these, committing these strategic partnerships with all these other large publicly traded companies. I mean, the, the, the corollary to that in the U.S. would be Microsoft having a huge stake in like a Google or another like Square, etc., cetera, mm. which the anti-competitive, you know, the regulatory body clamps down very heavily on. I think, you know, this is just the first step uh, wherein see all these Chinese companies, these really large Chinese technology companies being forced to by the government to start uh, cleaning up their investment portfolio, uh, specifically in other publicly traded stocks. So that's going to be, you know, uh, in the short term, at least it will be an increase of supply into the market. And we've seen accordingly the price action, right? I mean, C is down to, I think it's close to like 185 US dollars in the US. JD.com, which was going over 80, 85 dollars, is now trading at about 60 dollars. So we've seen like a pretty big 30, 40 percent correction in some of these really large names. Maybe it's more of the short-term nature, I would say, personally. So uh, from a longer-term perspective, I think there is some interesting pockets of value that can be identified over here. Indeed. But, uh, you know, the next month, two months, I think we'll be seeing a lot more news of uh, uh, fixing, quote-unquote, uh, the technology sector in China and making trying to make it more uh, anti-competitive, uh, uh, making it more competitive, sorry, I should say, and anti-monopolistic. Indeed. So really, we're seeing China's anti-monopoly rules and regulated concerns about data privacy um, in effect, coming into effect, really. And I think when it comes to value, people are going to be looking at, you know, what is Tencent a big shareholder of when it comes to Chinese tech companies to scoop up bargains, whether it's Huaya, uh, of which it's a big shareholder, 47%, Douyu, 37%, Meituan, Kuishou, Pinduoduo, Bilibili, or JD.com. But uh, you still see strength in the Chinese tech sector? I do. I mean, uh I'm not an investor in Tencent, but I am an investor in Alibaba. I think that's a name uh, that could be quite, uh, and it's been beaten down substantially. Uh, I do think that its competitive moat uh, is still very strong and it uh, is extremely attractive. I think it's probably the most attractively priced technology company globally that's, you know, a market cap of more than, say, like $10 billion, to be honest. So you must be happy that a Charlie Munger company nearly doubled its holdings in Alibaba recently. (laughs) That's right. He did. He did a couple of days back, which is, you know, I mean, who's to know what's going to be right or not? But I think the odds are in my favor if I'm siding with uh, Charlie Munger in this one. I know. Two of your picks on the same page. 
Arun, <laughs> fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much for being here. Pleasure as always, Michelle. Thanks for having me. He's Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow, right here on Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.